Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> you know, I have been at Ozark a long time. Um, <laughs> I'm finishing up my ninth semester as a student here, but before that, I spent 16 years growing up on this campus as dad was a professor. And no, this is not just going to be another cranky old senior spending 20 minutes talking about remember wins and back in my day. I'm a proctor. This will last at least 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But bear with me for a moment, because I have been around Ozark long enough to see a lot of people come and go, and over the years, tragically, I have seen a horrific trend develop. A fine young freshman come to campus eager and gung-ho about being in college, but by their sophomore year, those pure, innocent, naive little freshmen have contracted a terrible and potentially terminal case of, dun-dun-dun, Ozarkianitis. And I, too, developed a terrible case of this debilitating disease and am still in the process of recovering. So with that in mind, from one student to another, let Dr. Proctor give you 10 symptoms of Ozarkianitis so that maybe, just maybe, you can catch it before it's too late. Symptom number one. Uh, You tell Bible jokes that no normal person would get and you still think they're hilarious. (laughs) Hey, girl, I didn't believe in irresistible grace till I met you. Symptom number two, you find yourself growing out your hair, growing a beard, or wandering around campus in your skinny jeans, and you're not even sure how it happened. All you know is that you're really glad to now be a part of the community that is singularly responsible for Ben Rector's rise to fame. (laughs) Number three, uh, you've asked a professor to proofread your Greek or Hebrew tattoo because you've never had either class, but that word just still really inspires you. Symptom number four. When you hear the word sanctuary, you actually think of Joplin Ave, which is way cooler than Starbucks, which is so mainstream, right? (laughs) Symptom number five. You are self-conscious because you are the only guy on your floor who can't play the ukulele. But but thank goodness you still know four chords on the guitar. That'll come in handy at open dorms. (laughs) Symptom number six. When you hear your friends at state universities talk about Greek life, you don't realize that they're not talking about flashcards and vocab quizzes. (laughs) (laughs) Symptom number seven, you're either really single or on the verge of being married. (laughs) Thank you, Ozark Bridal College. (laughs) Symptom number eight. The food in the calf may not always be your favorite, but biscuits and gravy Thursdays are proof of the goodness of God for you. (laughs) Hashtag blessed, know what I mean? (laughs) And symptom number nine. You go to get a haircut and you have trouble explaining what you want to the barber, so you just show him a picture of Michael DeFazio. (laughs) (laughs) And symptom number ten. You may be in danger of being always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, having an intellectual curiosity without the moral fortitude to go with it. Now, I'm not accusing here, because hear me, uh, you all are a breath of fresh air for my soul. I love the passion and the love for learning and the love for God on this campus. And we've all heard the Seth Wilson quote a million times, who we teach you to love is more important than what? 
what we teach you to know, right? We love that. And I love that that is the heartbeat of this campus. And yet, if you're anything like me, you could be in danger of studying God without romancing God, knowing about Him without truly knowing Him like you should. And that's scary. Uh, Paul's description towards the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3 should be a warning to us on this campus. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So Ozark, how do we learn the right things? How do we know the right things without playing the silly little spiritual games and climbing the silly little half-backwards Ozark ladder where sometimes we try to gain status by being the best servant? You know what I mean? I mean, for, so for the next four sermons in chapel, we're, we're in a series called Be Still. And my topic today, as you've seen, is Be Still and Know. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open them up to Psalm 46 is where we're going to be today. So Ozark, what do we need to be still and know? What truth do we need to grab a hold of? How do we not just appear godly, but really let the power of the Godhead dwell within us? Well, as with most things, the answer is God. So we're going to look at two truths about God today that we need to be still and know. But first, let's read this psalm together. Let's just go ahead and read the whole thing. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear, he burns the shields with fire, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, the first thing that we see about God here is right out of the blocks. This psalm just opens abruptly with this volley of the reality of who God is. God is our refuge, our powerful present protection. So let's just take this opening sentence bit by bit here. Let's start with the first word, God. Not armies, not wealth, not status, not talent, not your name. God is our refuge. God is. God is right now, not was, not not might be, not he'll help you if you get a good refuge. No, God is your refuge right now. God is our. God is your. This is a personal God that we're dealing with. God is our refuge. He's an impregnable protection. He's an accessible shelter, a delightful retreat from the noise and the chaos. God is our refuge and strength. He's all-sufficient, unconquerable, undefeated. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present. He's near to the brokenhearted, even more present than the trouble itself. He can be found when you need him. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. He's sympathetic. He's faithful to provide. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, because of the reality that God is our refuge and strength, we can face that without fear. You remember that that's the most common command in the Bible, right? Do not be afraid 365 times. 
And so God makes the world in Genesis chapter 1. We know this. He gathers all of the waters into one place. Land emerging from the waters. Placing the natural order into motion. And yet, even when that order descends into chaos. Even if those lofty mountains were to stagger and collapse back into the chaos of the sea. If the very foundations of the earth shook. And all that God had created was just dissolving into utter turmoil. That same God who made the natural order is still in control when that order falls apart. And he himself is our refuge. So we could face that without fear. So here's what I want you to do. I bet everybody in this room has a source of anxiety in their life. I bet everybody's got a source of worry. So picture that thing, that place, that person that makes you worry. And then preach this truth to yourself right now over that worry. God is my refuge. God is my refuge. You remember that worry is a sin, right? So people, is God in control? Is he able to take care of this world that he made or not? You might be surrounded by calamity, but don't forget that your God is the Prince of Peace. And he's with you. So here's the first point of the sermon for all you homiletics people. God is our refuge. So lay down your fear. God is our refuge, so lay down your fear. And you have a lot of reasons to be afraid. We're vulnerable people. We're vulnerable to disease and injury, especially in the dorms, right, guys? Uh, you're vulnerable uh, financially because you've still got 800 bucks left on your account and you don't know how you're going to pay it and be able to come back next semester. Uh, you're vulnerable to your parents griping at you and your friends making fun of you every time you go home because they just don't get why in the world you don't quit this nonsense and get a real job. Uh, but we don't have to be afraid because even the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to us, death, has lost its sting. Yes. But there's a river. Whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She won't fall. God will help her at break of day. The mood shift in the psalm is drastic here in verses 4 and 5. We've seen these chaotic waters, right? They're bringing destruction and fear. But now we see, in the midst of this kind of end of the world, sky is falling, tumultuous picture, we see a steady river streaming into the city of God. Unlike most major cities back then, Jerusalem was not built on a natural water source, which was a problem. And so King Hezekiah diverted the spring of Gihon in the Kidron Valley through a hidden aqueduct into the city, 1,777 feet long. It flowed through this hidden pipe into a reservoir there in Jerusalem. And then Hezekiah covered up the spring outside so that nobody would find it. And because of that stream of water, the people of God living inside Jerusalem could survive a siege. And we see these rivers throughout the Bible, right? People meet God at the river. Jacob wrestles with God all night long after crossing a river. Moses is saved from the Nile and then later turns the Nile to blood as God is working to set his people free. God parts the river to let his people into the promised land. Naaman's leprosy is cured by bathing in the Jordan. Ezekiel and Daniel hear from God by the water in Babylon. Uh, John baptizes repentant Jews in the Jordan. God declares Jesus and confirms him as his son at the Jordan River. And so we see these rivers and even in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 there's this river in Eden whose branches water the whole garden and then there's a river in Ezekiel's eschatological vision this river flows from the temple and into the Dead Sea and it just brings life to everything that it touches and of course there's Revelation chapter 22 where the whole biblical narrative is ended bookended framed by this river that flows from the throne of God bringing life and peace and blessing so this river here Psalm 46 is the presence of God and we are the city of God indwelt built owned and ruled by the most high God himself and because we have his presence 
We can have peace in the chaos. His presence is our greatest weapon and defense. I mean, nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, though, and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That same word that created the cosmos now comes as God just shouts. And the chaos of the earth is conquered and quieted. The word of the Lord is powerful, amen? This is the Lord Almighty who's with us. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of heaven's armies, legions of angels. Yet he's also the God of Jacob, who's our fortress. His chesed, steadfast love and covenantal kindness means that he is with us and he's for us. My goodness, what if we actually lived with this reality in mind? Can you imagine? What if we told our fears to just shrivel up and die? And and we remembered this truth that God is with us. Oh, come, Emmanuel. God is our refuge. So lay down your fear. Uh, one night after dinner, mom's cleaning up, says to her young son, Johnny, would you mind going and getting the broom for me off the back porch? So Johnny goes to the back porch, opens the door, peers out into the darkness. He's just a little kid, though. He's, he's kind of scared. Mom sees what's going on, sees a teachable moment. So she says, Johnny, come here, buddy. Honey, are you scared? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Johnny, you know you don't have to be scared, buddy. Don't you know that Jesus is always with you? Jesus is with you wherever you go. Why don't you go back and give it another try? Johnny says, okay. So he goes back, opens the back door again, peers out on the back porch. He can see the broom over there. says, Jesus, I know you're always with me. So would you mind handing me that broom over there? (laughs) We're Bible college students. We know that Jesus is with us. We have studied these things, right? We know this, and yet our fear still gets the best of us sometimes. So in order to move from, from knowing to really knowing... This truth that God is with us, that God is our refuge. We need to focus on the right thing. Don't look at your fear. Look at your father. So to steal an illustration from Randy Garris and Peter Buckland, um, perhaps your problems look so big and God seems so small because you're just looking at them the wrong way. Uh, I have a dime here. I had to take out a loan to get it after five years at Ozark. But <laughs> and... When I hold this dime right up to my eye, it is awfully hard to see anything else. And the same thing is true for you. When you focus on your fears, uh, be it bad grades or rejection by family, not fitting in with peers, failing at ministry, not measuring up to those around you, not being desirable, running out of money, that sin that keeps coming back, the garbage that goes on every time you go home. I don't know what your fear is. But when you keep looking at your fears, it just consumes you. But, but when you take a step back, and when you hold it out where it belongs, all of a sudden, you see the bigger picture. The problem assumes its proper size. And the reason our problems seem bigger than they are, and God seems smaller than he is, is a matter of perspective. It's a matter of knowing, of being still, and knowing that God is our refuge. And that whatever happens, and whatever that you're scared of, is, is just tiny compared to him. And when we look at him, we see this whole panorama of his goodness and and his faithfulness throughout the ages. And our problem just isn't really so big anymore. God is with you right now in this moment and every moment to follow. So be still and know God. Not just about him, but consecrate your mind to the truth that God is our refuge. So lay down your fear. That's the first thing. Let's go ahead and look at the back half of this psalm. Starting in verse 8. Come and see what the Lord has done. 
the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. You remember in church as a kid when you'd be squirming during the sermon and making paper airplanes out of the visitor information cards and your mom would clamp down on your leg and squeeze it so hard that you've probably still got fingerprint marks embedded in your knee and she'd say, sit still with her teeth clenched. Do you remember that? I think that's what's going on here. We've just gotten out of this end of the world type battle with everything crashing down around us and yet we're safe and sound in the steady city of God. And then, just like the hush that follows a terrible storm, we're called to come out and to see what has happened. So we peer over the city walls and we look out at the destruction and the Prince of Peace has indeed brought utter defeat to this world that rebelled against him. You know, when the Romans had given peace uh, to a nation by wiping them out, they collected the weapons of the defeated people and they burned them to ashes. And we see God doing that same thing here. And God always said that this would happen, right? Rebellions and wars were never his style. He always said that we would beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. He said that we would take our weapons and burn them for fuel. And sure enough, he did, and we won, he won again. Except now, all of a sudden, for the first time in this psalm, God turns and he's talking directly to us. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I always used to read this like, You know, sit quietly, meditate, get out your Bible and your journal and your coffee and calm down, find your center, spend some time in prayer. And that's all fine and good, but I don't think that's what it's talking about here. Now, this is a call to everyone who's left to surrender. And there are a lot of ways to say, be still in Hebrew. But this one is more like, cease and desist. Stop what you've been doing and be still. Break it up. Hands off. Put down your weapons and reach for the sky. And, and, and this is not so much a call for us to, 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 to be quiet in serenity as it is a call to stop trying to fight God's battles for him. Because as it turns out, we don't surrender to our enemies. We surrender to our God. We're not afraid of anything, but we do fear God because our God is aggressive. And if we get in a way, he, he just might have to defeat you if you get in his way. And the word used here, it means, it, means, it means let go. Let your arms down to your side. When we do this, arms at our side, we're defenseless. We can't control anything anymore. God is commanding us to be weak. Moses said this to the Israelites when they were freaking out as the Egyptian army was closing in on them. We read it earlier. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And I want us all to be hard workers. God's kingdom is going to grow as we work our tails off together for his glory. But sometimes God just wants us to sit down and be quiet. And that's always the vibe I get when I'm reading Psalm 23. God makes me lie down in green pastures. <laughs> he, doesn't, I, he doesn't just want me to say, yep, you're God and keep doing, keep doing my thing. No. He says, sit down, stop what you're doing and know that I'm God. <laughs> and sometimes when Israel would work too hard, they got themselves in trouble. During Isaiah's lifetime, Judah wanted to look for help from Egypt because it was the logical thing to do. Egypt was powerful. They were not. But God warned against it. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. He says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
This battle doesn't belong to you or me. It belongs to God. And we are here because we are giving our lives to the service of the kingdom of God. And yet, if we didn't, the kingdom of God would be just fine. God's not squirming on his throne saying, man, I wish Luke Proctor would hurry up and graduate. I don't know what I'm going to do without him. No. God will be exalted with or without us. Everyone, enemy or friend, will know the glory and the victory of God. He will be honored and worshipped, either willingly or by force, either by terror or by love. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what this text is saying to us. Point number two, homiletics people. God is our ruler. So lay down your weapons. God is our refuge, so lay down your fear. But God is our ruler, so lay down your weapons. God is looking at us and he's telling us to stop striving, to stop doing, to stop trying to fight his battles for him, to stop trying to control outcomes. And we desire to be in control, don't we? To have the world be and do what we want it to be and do. And yet, the overall life and health of the church does not depend on your GPA, does not depend on how much you or I get done today. It doesn't depend on whether or not you get your dream ministry job or how you are perceived by your peers. By all means, work hard, be excellent. Yet we should never forget the words of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house the builders labor in vain unless the lord watches over the city the guards stand watch in vain in vain you rise early for 7 a.m classes and stay up late toiling for food to eat for he grants sleep to those he loves amen (laughs) we will be workers in his harvest field but at the end of the day we got to recognize that he's the one building his kingdom and his church so let's end the semester the same way we started it i guess god is god And I am not. Someone once said, the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. (laughs) So we can stop these silly little games we get sucked into playing where, hey, I'm at least one of the three best preachers in my homiletics class. Or I got 67 likes on that tweet. Wow, I'm moving up in the world. Wonder what deep spiritual insight I can cram into 140 characters next. Or, Or I got to walk with that professor to class. I bet that makes me look smart. No, and I'm preaching to myself here. At the end of the day, God is God and we are not. God is here. And God is your ruler. So lay down your weapons. Cease your chatter. Cease your stress, your hurried lifestyles, your endless to-do lists that dominate your days. Be still and acknowledge the presence of a conquering God who looks at you and says, surrender. Lay down the things that you are using to defend yourself, the facades of significance and the defenses that you use to build your image and prop up your God complex. Because the chief symptom of Ozarkianitis that I see in myself and that unfortunately I see in a lot of us, uh, but really I guess it's more than that, it's sin, it's idolatry. It'll carry on into our ministries as we leave because deep down inside, just like Eve and the serpent, we all still kind of want to play God, don't we? And we all rush, rush, rush around as the kings of our own little worlds, even our own little ministry worlds. And we hurry and we hurry and we hurry and we kind of just think we're the king. (laughs) John Orberg one time called Dallas Willard. After describing his hectic daily life, John Orberg says, you know, I'm not doing so well. What do I need to do? There was a long pause on the other end of the line. Dallas Willard responded, it's really quite simple. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. 
Ortberg is taking notes quickly, either eager to squeeze every you know possible drop of spiritual insight from this long distance phone call. And he says, that's great. What else can I do <laughs> after another long pause? That's it. There's nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Out of Dallas Willard's deep friendship with John Ortberg and out of his quiver full of spiritual insights, he drew only one arrow. Stop hurrying and lay down your weapons. Now, I don't know what your weapons are, but my hunch is that the root of your hurry is a weapon that you need to lay down because sometimes hurry reveals that you might think you're the king. And I love this school so much that it hurts, and I am eternally grateful for this place. These five years at Ozark have shaped me beyond my wildest dreams and knocked me head over heels in love with God and his people and my wife. But there's one thing that we really need to learn. God is God, and you are not. And we likely won't know that deeply until we are still, until we drop our weapons and let him fight his own battles. So God is your refuge. Lay down your fear. God is your ruler, so lay down your weapons. And the bottom line is this. All over this psalm, God is here. He is an ever-present help. He's a river in his city. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Most High dwells in this city. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. And of course, the ultimate help at break of day came at the break of the third day, did it not? The ultimate victory of God and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so now God is with us, Emmanuel. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> so be still and know, Emmanuel. God is here. So lay down your fear. Be still and know, Emmanuel. God is here. So lay down your anxiety. Be still and know, Emmanuel. God is here. So lay down your control. Be still and know, Emmanuel. God is here. So lay down your desire to be God. But even then, it's all too easy for God to be here and us just not know it. So I guess let me close with this question. If you really believe that God was here, how would that change how you lived? Right now, next to you, if God was there, what would you do differently? You know, I think I wouldn't be afraid anymore. But I think I'd probably also let him do his job a little more than I do now. I mean, I was going to preach, but man, Jesus, if you're here, why don't you just get up there and do it? You got this. Be still and know God. Know that God is your refuge, so lay down your fear. Know that God is your ruler, so lay down your weapons. Because Emmanuel, God is here.